welcome back. So I had enough folks ask about the rest of the interview uh, with meditation, Chris Lugamule and myself. So I thought I would get that posted. This is just going to be a shorty episode, sort of an addendum to two Libras walk into a meditation center. So if you enjoyed that episode, um, please enjoy this luxurious extra, extra, extra uh, bit of conversation between myself and Chris. Um, This is more of a biographical uh, topical episode uh, about Chris and I meeting at a meditation center in Barnet, Vermont, part of the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, one of the first um, Tibetan Buddhist meditation centers in all of North America that was established very close to the Canadian border in Vermont. Uh, It was a very, very special part of my life and a pivotal point in my human experience going from a very anxious, angsty, unsettled younger person, just full of rage and resentment and trying to get past early recovery in a meaningful way um, for myself in, in so many so many levels, just not just about substance abuse, but all of the, the pieces that come with that, the emotional recovery that comes with it, the spiritual recovery, trying to gather myself, gather oneself and, uh, and progress along the path. Um, so this is this is sort of an indulgent episode where you'll get he- to hear more of uh, Chris and Mai's take on our experiences there, our experiences with some of the the things that came up with uh, Shambhala. Um, we we talk a little bit about this idea of Western gurus and how Westerners have a really difficult difficult time with devotional practices because we tend to put people on pedestals, and the same issues that happen with yoga communities. Um, within celebrity community, uh, when we put people on pedestals, we pretend like we don't have our power, that they're better than or above us. And um, this happens within all types of institutions. And so there was a, um, you know, we'll we'll go into that in the conversation here, but uh, just wanted to let you know, this is part one as part two, because this is part two of the first episode where we do the interview. So if you didn't hear that one, you could start this episode and then switch back to two Libras walk into a meditation center. I hope you enjoy this one. Chris, welcome. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Beautiful. Can you hear me me okay? Loud and clear. Great. Welcome to the Space Cast. Here Mm, we are. It's great to be here. Yeah, (laughs) wonderful. (laughs) Well, we're welcoming Chris Lugenbuehl today, who is a dear, 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 dear friend of mine that I met about 10 years ago in Barnet, Vermont. Um, (laughs) Very far north near the Canadian border. Um, And funny enough, Chris is Canadian. So we'll have to ask him what that's like later on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Chris and I met at a um, a meditation retreat uh, at a a Tibetan meditation center under the Shambhala tradition of kind of Western Buddhism. Would Would you describe it as that? Yeah, it's um, it's 
you know, rooted in Tibetan Buddhism, but specifically, you know, um, applicable for modern folks outside of a monastic context, living as householders and, you know, having jobs and families in the West. Right. Yeah. So householder is the is the term that's kind of translated into our language, like people who want to practice Buddhism without shaving their heads and moving you know, into a monastic circumstance, right? This is about like getting, getting meditation in everybody's household. Exactly. Right. And that's kind of where the word Shambhala came from, right? Like what, what Trungpa was leaning into and we'll, you know, we'll explain who Trungpa is, but like that, that idea of leaning into um, creating enlightened society, which is where Shangri-La or Shambhala, that, that concept came from, like this idea that if we all vibrate and raise our consciousness enough, that, that, you know, we're doing the work and we're assisting others, which there's like nothing more compassionate than that, I think. Yeah. Right. Oh, man. Jumping right in. We're just getting right in there. But <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it's just like a funny story, uh, you know, on my end of things. And I'd love to hear Chris's kind of end of that, that experience that, you know, I was, um, I don't know, six months sober living in New York City out of a backpack. Um, I was bouncing from home to home, apartment to apartment, finding very temporary living circumstances after a lot of big life shifts for myself, like namely committing to my sobriety, committing to my meditation practice, my yoga practice. And this opportunity came up to join up with uh, what they called the MUKPO Institute, M-U-K-P-O. Um, so MUKPO, uh, it's it was it was the idea that you know this core group of individuals would be able to experience intensive meditation practice and study in the context of three months living at a dharma center. Um, Chris, what, how would you translate dharma? How do you how do you describe that word? Mm, yeah, yeah. There's uh, interesting. A translator was talking about this. It's it's usually used to discuss like Buddhist philosophy and practice. And uh, this translator was saying, it's actually like, uh, you know, not that narrow. It's all the techniques and knowledge and practices that belong to that tradition. So you would, you could talk about the dharmas of cooking was the example this person <laughs> gave, you know, all the, all the kitchen clobber and, and apparatus and cookbooks and uh, knowledge and ability so dharma is kind of this this lovely word that we don't really have a translation for for all the stuff that goes into that that way of living big umbrella term yeah uh, right oh man so okay so like we'll switch back to, it was uh i think early 2011 so we're coming mm. up on a 10, 10 years, Chris. Yeah. Um, and this is like, Chris and I had no idea who the other person was at this point in the story. But um, I was encouraged by my meditation instructor, which is a big part of, um, I don't know, I guess passing on the tradition of proper meditation study, especially for newcomers to meditation. And, you know, meditation is one of the themes of kind of today that I wanted to get into these ideas of like doing, having and developing a personal practice. Um, but my MI's uh, Dharma name, which is a name you take when you, um, you assume refuge in Buddhism, which I guess the Western term would be conversion, you know, religious conversion to Buddhism. Um, he, got, he went by Dharma Thunder and... <laughs> No doubt. Like he was, he was a really intimidating individual. And like, I had kind of an intimidating dad, so he didn't scare me at all. <laughs> Most people, he just was a very serious practitioner and he helped to build 
Karma Choling in the late 60s. He was one of the hands that were there to convert this old farmhouse into a living, breathing Dharma center. Um, and being part of the New York Sangha, I was really able to access a lot of these, I guess, old timers. They're, they're not old people, but, it, you know, it was like the, the 60s was quite some time ago. So the fact that they were still around and still practicing really gives a lot of um, comfort in the lineage and the tradition that, that this was being built off of. Yeah. Um, so he encouraged me to apply to this institute. And I get this letter back after this, you know, very thoughtful, like scholarship letter and all the things, because I didn't have the money to, to go live at a Dharma center to quit my job and all of this kind of stuff. And um, I got a letter back from, from Karma Choling and they said, you know, we were going to have to cancel the Institute, but because you and three other people just applied like on the same day in what, February of 2011, we'll be able <laughs> yeah. to move forward. So we need you up here by March 3rd, 2011. I think that's when we moved up there. It was Shambhala day. I think that it yeah. was, yeah, it was a, a holiday, a lunar holiday. Um, and, and funny enough, Chris, like I was just reading about the, the lunar eclipse that happened um, almost two weeks ago. And it was on the Gemini and Sagittarius nodal axis, which you don't need to know about. But the last time that this happened was the day that we moved up to Karma Choling. Oh. So there's this weird like wraparound moment that I'm having <laughs> with, yeah. with this idea of recommitment to my, my own practices. Um, so we, we got the okay to all, you know, the four of us, uh, Chris and Bill and Aaron and myself. So uh, two males, two females moving up to this Dharma center in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Bill hailed from Philadelphia. I'd been living in New York city. Aaron came all the way from Seattle and you were coming in from Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, so that is the, that is the, the story. And I, I would love to hear Chris side of it. You know, what, what had you move up there in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was a big leap, but um, really felt right. And uh, I hesitated as well and only applied at the last minute when um, uh, sort of um, a, a, one of those senior meditators who was the, one of the founders of the Toronto Shambhala Center back in 1970 really encouraged me to go and do it. She and her husband had been very active, uh, welcoming, you know, welcoming uh, folks who wanted to come and join in sitting meditation once or twice a week at the Shambhala Center. They would make tea, they would give instruction, they'd welcome, you know, anyone could come in and do this for free. And they'd been doing that from the 70s, 1970 until uh, pretty well, you know, 2010. They, they moved to the countryside and turned their home into a meditation center that you could do longer retreats at. So, you know, I'd been coming after work to the Toronto Center that they helped found. You know, there's a couple hundred of these in different cities all over the place, mostly North America and Western Europe, but but including elsewhere. Um, and uh, the, uh, you know, I'd come after work and we'd sit for an hour and I had a bit of a practice at home in the mornings. And, you know, it was clear that this was um, a challenging but worthwhile, you know, undertaking to try and learn to meditate. And then I had a chance to spend the interval between Christmas and New Year's doing a longer retreat where you sit, you're sitting in walking meditation, mindful eating and stuff like that in kind of a, um, a nature, a natural environment in the hills outside Toronto. Mm. Um, 
at their place and you know, I was sleeping in the, on the floor of the shrine room and I was in heaven. And after a few days of this, you know, challenging, but very rewarding, I realized, oh, there's this experience of meditation that is, you know, quite different from what you get practicing 20 minutes a day or whatever at home or, or once a week at the, at the center on a Wednesday night when you, when you spend, you know, all day, every day kind of practicing or reading or contemplating or discussing this stuff some kind of insights can really happen in a more compressed way. And I went back to work and had, you know, very intense, difficult negotiations as we're running this very stressful business. So I was in this very calm and, and composed state while having this sort of, you know, intense argument with, with, uh, you know, business partners and, and so on. I realized that, you know, this is something that can work you know, as not just a way of sort of centering and, you know, um, achieving insight and being contemplative and reflective, but it can also work in the, in the busy world, in the context of a regular um, stressful urban life. Oh. Um, so, you know, after I quit that job, <laughs> the first thing I wanted to do was go on retreat and, and learning about the opportunity to do um, two, first a two week retreat. And then this three month long program that, that you and I did together, it was, it wasn't a question in my mind. As soon as I could make it work with my life circumstances, um, it was yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so you immediately could see the benefits of um, intensive and consistent meditation practice and how it was affecting your life off the cushion, so to speak. Yeah, very much, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Chris, you've experienced a lot of retreat opportunities, and I, I think that's like you have such a commitment to your sanity practice, I suppose, and, and, and to this work and doing the kind of alchemical process of yourself. But I mean, I, what I remember, you know, we, we did a Datun, which basically translate to like one moon cycle, which would be about a month. And we did uh, the center or the heart of our retreat over the three months was doing this intensive, silent meditation intensive um, I think I keep saying intensive because, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, not a coincidence, <laughs> not a coincidence. Um, and, you know, the, the, the group fluctuated. There was a core of us that stayed for the, the duration of the month. And this type of practice is uh, instrumental, I think, in those following uh, the Shambhala path of Buddhism, um, which I have since strayed from um, because of my own reasons and, uh, not feeling a heart connection with the leader of that group. And there's, I think that taking a vow to anything, it has to be a very serious and very like certain practice. And it was, was not something I could do at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I think that the benefits from being part of the Mukpo Institute and being part of the Shambhala uh, training has really benefited me in the long term. And, and a big piece of that was doing this month long retreat, which was, you know, get up at seven, you chant, you eat monastically in the Oriyoki style, which they taught us during the retreat. And we had all of our meals that way for an entire month. And it, it went from day one, uh, total delusion about everything. I was like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. I got this. And I'm going to be able to tell everybody that like, I'm such a badass and I hmm. can like, you know, I can do a meditation retreat for a month and like the first gong and it's 7.20 a.m. on the first morning and I've, you know, completely deluded myself. 
And I remember the teachers telling us that, you know, there's an unraveling process that has to happen here, like the, the bringing in and the pushing out of sort of the tightness of the own mind. Um, and I, I, can, I can attest to experiencing that. And we lived in that shrine room at Karma Choling. I mean, we, we lived in it for the duration of the retreat and we, we were there that entire month. And it feels like Oz, you know, I, when I talk to people about, about the Shambhala Center in, in Vermont, no one really gives a damn about my experience. You know, like that was something that I noticed. I, I left for three months. I moved back to Iowa from New York City shortly after returning from the retreat, recognizing that I was not where I needed to be at that time. And uh, I just noticed how often people didn't care about, oh, okay, well, that's nice. They didn't have like a, a concern about what an intensive experience it was. Mm. And I think about survivors like us and that bond that it created, mm. um, knowing that just a few months later, you know, you and I went to Burning Man, which was its own kind of retreat experience, yeah. you know, having, having a 14-day a um, festival in the middle of the desert in this uh the city that was built out of an idea you know and, and it yeah. became a mirror to both of those circumstances except one was the monastic side of it and the other one was like existing in samsara with all its highs and all its lows and all of its pleasure and all of its pain yeah and both both of them are intentional communities that have these core principles and are very inspiring and very different, you know, existing within our sort of uh, capitalist Western culture while kind of imposing or, or inspiring a whole other set of values above and beyond that while still embedded in that. It's really interesting. And both are, I think, you know, brilliant and also flawed. Um, and wonderful to, you know, you have to sort of experience them, as you say, you know, trying to describe that to someone who wasn't there, you know, I remember talking to one meditation retreatant whose friends say, oh, it sounds like it's like a spa day for your mind. Well, <laughs> you know, not at all. The word retreat is a bit misleading in the sense that, you, you know, you're not really running away from anything or having a particularly relaxing time. And one of my, my partner's friends said a month. You know, does anyone have that much to think about? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Imagining that I'm like, you know, sort of pondering or something that whole time. Um, so, and then other people, you know, of course, I'm sure you've encountered this. Like they, they imagine, well, I've tried to sit still with, be with myself for 10 minutes and that can be tough a, a whole day or a whole week or a month. Um, that sounds hellish, but it's not, especially hellish either. I mean, there's, there's highs and lows. Uh, but I think, you know, this is a tradition that's you know, rooted in um, Buddhism going back 2,500 years and meditation goes back even further than that. Um, they've developed skillful ways, dharmas, technologies, techniques, you know, to, to support people's investigation. So you can be, you know, effectively focused and undistracted without actually being, you know, some kind of superhuman, um, you know, ascetic or, um, you know, particularly um, self-indulgent. Um, There's some kind of balance between um, discipline and just ease, you could say. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm after, after the 30 days, um, you opted to go live in a cabin by yourself mm. and do a, they call it the solitary retreat. 
Yeah. They basically send you out into the woods with a couple of coolers full of food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you don't you don't have a phone. I mean, you're you're out in the the sticks, you know, like they take you out there on a like a four-wheeler or <laughs> Yeah. What? I mean, do you you felt probably pretty prepared for that after a month of um creating that ritual, so to speak, you know, the or the guidelines. What was yeah. that like for you? Yeah, well, you know, you're you definitely feel that you are in good hands. There's a, there's a retreat master who's in charge of all those, you know, four wheelers and cabins and helps with things. But they're also having they're a pretty seasoned practitioner and they have a real good look at you and chat with you and stuff and and uh, to make sure that your attitude is uh, not you know your expectations are kind of realistic and you are um, you know in a fairly stable headspace you haven't decided to go off your meds for instance or take this as an opportunity to take up an intensive regimen of exercise and quitting smoking or something like okay just you know um, just uh, have have modest expectations and do do this in a way that's going to help keep your mind stable you know don't don't go for um you know um a kind of um you know out of body experiences or extraordinary states you're you're kind of grounding yourself and you're using nature to do that um you know and when you're in retreat with other people that that certainly is good practice you know there's the the you know following a schedule getting to know the ups and downs of your own mind, realizing that you're not going to, you know, none of your uh, neuroses are are likely to be um, life-threatening or or unsurmountable and so on. And um, of course, when you, when you go off into the hills and you do this in a cabin by yourself, um, you know, you have, everything that happens in that little cabin that's all coming from you you know you can't blame it on that irritating person next to you or yeah um, you know um the ants i remember you coming back and telling us about the ants and (laughs) yeah right you know little things become magnified right it's like uh pema children says if you have this uh, a floral tablecloth well, there can be all kinds of, you know, crumbs and stains on it, and you might not notice in the, amongst the busyness of that pattern. But if you have a white cl- tablecloth and there's a speck, well, it, you see it. So by simplifying your surroundings and your routine and so on, any little thing becomes magnified. And, and you know, at one point, ants came into the cabin and they... They found the maple syrup that I had for sweetening my oats, and there was a line of them. And I was like, "Oh no! What am you know? I'm infested the cabin with these ants. What am I going to do?" But maybe they're you know here to reflect a message to me that they are you know the protector entities. Yes, they are the protectors. That's it. I mustn't you know harm them. In fact, I should um, I should move the maple syrup to somewhere. And I went on this <laughs> insane train of thought. You know, it's just me trying to make breakfast at the end of the day right and and just how <laughs> so you you see it comes into focus the games that your mind can get up to in given the slightest opportunity so um yeah i reminded myself of an experience that you had where you by mentioning that inevitably 
on meditation retreat in a group setting, there will be an irritating person. Uh, do yes. you feel like saying, if you remember how that discussion went when you had a chance to talk to the retreat leader? <laughs> <laughs> I, lo I love your uh, your impression of Myrna so much more. <laughs> was it My Myrna? I think that was her name. She had uh, Myra, amazing hair. Myra. Myra Woodruff, yes. Uh, she had the most amazing hair. Mm -hmm. um, I, we, we had someone in our group that um, had mental illness, which is, that's fine. There are so many people who live with that. Um, however, some of the tendencies were not of those of someone who was neurotypical. And this individual was constantly bending the rules in a lot of ways. Um, lots of snorting sounds, um, movement, fidgeting you know, whereas I was a very stoic practitioner, you know, I worked very hard on creating a serious posture so that I could very much work with my mind. And this person would lay down on the floor and, <laughs> and, and like pick up bugs during meditation hours and stuff. I mean, he, he just had this, um, this way about him and I was going to have to live with this person for a while. So <laughs> I decided to confront this head on, you know, and I, I talked to the retreat master and, and uh, I said, you know, this person is a problem. They're distracting everyone. They're always in the way, you know, and I was making it so much about this person. And mm -hmm. what she shared with me was like, this is not about them. This is about you. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the first time I realized that everything was a projection of my own mind, that the things around me that irritated me were things that I didn't um, integrate within myself. And I had to look very, very, very hard at that. And um, my, my own idiosyncrasies, my own tensions, my, mo my own history of mental illness and, and, you know, depression and anxiety and how that looked like. And this person ended up being such a gift to me because they were like a magnified version, just like the ants. This person became my greatest teacher at the retreat. And over the time that was spent with this individual, um, they flowered. I mean, I, I remember them like basically hosting my birthday party there mm, mm -hmm. at the end of one month mm. and finding out that they love to dance and <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember the salsa dancing and, and it was like, they just came out of their shell and I learned to love this person. The more that I learned to love myself, it was like this reflection of me was so much more lovable. Yeah. The thing I remember most about the salsa dancing and that all happened on the very last day of our, our retreat was your response to seeing that was the most celebrating that person and the most congratulatory and supportive out of everyone. You know, we were applauding politely, but you were like, yeah, you know, <laughs> you became the biggest supporter. So that was quite a transformation as well. Thank you for sharing. I don't remember that bit, but I, oh, just, I, yeah. I remember just like, I was so delighted with them. And their last name, I'm not going to say it, but um, there's a translation. There was a du I had a Dutch meditation instructor and they're like, oh, you know that their last name means itch or tickle. It just depends on how you translate it. And I was like, what? That's like 
that you can't write books like this. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's a story you can't make up is when things irritate you, you can choose for them to itch or to tickle you. Mm-hmm. It's really about perception. And I think that's what meditation teaches us in such a deep way is to, um, to notice our reactions versus our responses to things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. I, I just love diving down this rabbit hole with you kind of going into mm. our stories of this, but I, I mean, I do, you know, you having so much experience with retreat and us watching the, the people who went mad, you know, who just lost it within one or two days of being at the retreat center, mm. who would almost be propelled or like, whiplashed out of that surround, you know, out of that arena. Mm. Um, yeah. I, know, I mean, I'm sure that you can think of some people who came out there for the spa, for the retreat experience to deal with whatever their breakup, their sobriety. There was so many people who came to that space to seek healing, mm-hmm. but had just not built the foundational work um, because they were looking for a spoon feeding when dharma and meditation practice is really about doing the work yourself mm-hmm. uh, do you have any thoughts on that about people you know not jumping into a month-long retreat or a uh you know a, a solitary retreat like what you experienced yeah i mean that even that solitary retreat in a sense is not solitary because you're surrounded by this support network really and uh, in a safe place where you're not going to be robbed or ravaged by bears or anything like that and um yeah there are people you know there's definitely always people who make the long trek out there and then realize oh this you know i should have done my homework more um or you know or we find out oh actually you you know you are suffering from psychosis and this is not going to be the thing that will be it's not conducive for you. It may not help with the psychosis. And um, it's, it's probably not helpful, you know, with certain conditions to, uh, to do meditation um, of this kind. And, um, you know, Jack Kerouac did that. He did his summer as a fire lookout on top of some mountain and he got up there and he realized, well, the thing is I went up here to, to get away from it all. But I, you know, what I discovered was me, (laughs) I was still here you know, um, and there's, a, there's even a, a Christian archbishop who is saying, you know, it's not heaven because you are in it. <laughs> you bring your own, you bring your own, <laughs> you bring yourself every time. So if you're hoping to get away from yourself, well, that's going to be tricky, right? So I think most of the time they recommend people sort of establish a practice, maybe work with a teacher or some, some spiritual friend who has more experience with it to kind of get a handle on what the practice is and, and get some kind of foundation before deciding to plunge in to the deep end and do, and do a more intensive thing. But that said, you know, one of the most wonderful things you can do for yourself is to take a week or whatever. I, I think, you know, even shorter practice sometimes people have we have a sort of guilt that this is a self-indulgent thing to make time for yourself encounter this with parents you know mothers especially how can i take 10 minutes and shut my kids out of in the morning when they're clamoring for me just for myself how can i even isn't that a selfish thing to do and you think about that well might seem that way but actually it might be one of the best things you can do to you know to work with your refill own. your cup yeah absolutely sharpen your axe and and cultivate your own innate qualities that are so helpful in every arena 
Uh, and likewise, a month out of a lifetime is really not such a long time or, or certainly a weekend or a week is, you know, it's, it's not, it's not impossible. We find, we find time to go on vacation and this is, um, this is definitely always a memorable and powerful experience for sure. I'm so grateful to have Chris Lugambuhl as a friend in my life, and I hope that you benefited from both of our conversations. So remember, this is part two, but it's actually part one uh, to our interview. And for those of you who are interested in finding meditation instruction online, there's a lot of really great free communities out there with very established teachers. Um, I have to say that a lot of the teachers from the Shambhala tradition are um, well-trained. I love the style that and the approach of it, um, but there's a lot out there. Um, so I think of Susan Piver's community. Uh, if you look her up online, um, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who uh, was one of the writers for Radical Dharma. And I have to say that this is one of the most powerful communities that I have encountered ever. (laughs) And the intersectionality, the accessibility, um, it's a really beautiful thing. So they have a liberated life network, which is connected into the radical Dharma community. So if you look that up online, uh, they do regular meditation instruction and group seated practices via Zoom uh, until we can all breathe again in the same rooms. Um, I wish you well on your meditation journey. Uh, For me, this has been a key to opening so many doors that I felt were always going to be locked. And until next time, stay inspired.